Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Ve salatu ve selamu ala seyyidina ve habibina Muhammed seyyidil avalin ve al-akhirin. Ve ala alihi ve ashabihi ecma'in. Brothers, sisters, students, friends, future engineers. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's great to be with you guys, inshallah, as we start uh, the reading of Al-Munqidh min al-Dalal. والمواصل إلى العزة والجلال أبو حمد الغزالي. You see it translated often as like deliverance from error. It's more like salvation from misguidance. Be like a better way. المنقذ is the one that's like drowning in an ocean, right? And then they're saved. So the idea is like drowning in misguidance. And of course that's out of his humility. Like no one should think he was like that misguided. Right? It's just he's being very vulnerable. We'll talk about that in a second. Al-Muwassil is the one that leads to Al-Izza wal-Jalal and what brings about a sense of honor and notoriety. So this is a book that he wrote at the age of 50. Uh, Imam Al-Ghazali, so around 499 after Hijri. Uh, Imam Abu Hamid Al-Ghazali was born 450 Hijri and dies 505 Hijri. So think about it, this is actually five years before his death. Rahimahullah. Uh, and it is actually considered a unique piece in early Islamic literature because many people believe it's more of an autobiography. And that was something that was like unique to the Muslim world for a number of reasons, primarily because it, it wasn't considered good to talk about yourself. Like you may inadvertently boast in a way which is, is unacceptable. Allah says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the end of Surah Al-Imran, people who love to be praised for what they haven't done. So there's theories as to why this genre, the autobiographical genre was not prevalent in the Muslim world, especially in the time of uh, Al-Ghazali is that it was considered, um, and we still have that now, right? To boast, to brag. Uh, it's considered something that we should avoid. Uh, Abu Hamad al-Ghazali was born 450 after Hijri. Um, and up until 480, uh, you know, in his early youth, he memorized the Quran. He was taken care of by his uncle and his brother. His father passed away when he was young. And then eventually he goes to Nesabur, which is of course now part of Iran. And he becomes the student of the leading scholar of his age, Imam al-Haramain. Imam al-Haramain. Imam al-Haramain dies 478 Hijri, so around 440, 448, something like that. I believe al-Ghazali goes and becomes his student. Stays with him for a while, even maybe 460, if I remember correctly, um, until he dies. And then Imam al-Ghazali becomes appointed uh, as the head of what was considered one of the first institutionalized systems, Nizam al-Mulk, of Islamic studies in the Muslim world, like a university. He becomes extremely popular, um, celebrated legal theorist. Many people think of al-Ghazali as a Sufi, but his most important works are probably written in legal theory, uh, al-Mustasfa. And 
actually becomes like appointed, like what we say, the rector of that institution. And, and historians note that his followers became so much that they were more than even people like who would hang around the kings and the politicians of his day. So he achieved tremendous amount of popularity. And then suddenly, in four, this happens in 484. In 488, suddenly he just quits. He just dips out. He leaves. He pulls away um, from his position. He heads to Damascus, Syria. And it's in Syria, we ask Allah to uh, facilitate and help our, our Syrian family. He writes his book, Ihya'alumid-Din, The Revival of Religious Sciences, The Resuscitation of Religious Sciences. And then he spends some time in Masjid al-Aqsa. Um, eventually he comes back to Naysapur. He teaches, he becomes a Sufi. Um, he dedicates his time to studying Hadith. And then he writes a few books, mashallah, and then he dies, subhanAllah, around 505 after Hijri. The book that I teach on Tuesday night is actually considered the last book he wrote. The book that we're studying here is considered a book he wrote five years before he died. Why is this book very important for college students is that he openly addresses the crisis of doubt. And he roots that crisis of doubt into a number of issues that may sound familiar. But before I get into that, let, let me ask you, what do you think are the main ingredients as students, university students? What are the main kind of fundamental ingredients you find as challenges within the Muslim community these days? Right? What are the major challenges of the Muslim community from the perspective of the future of the Ummah. You are the future of the Ummah, the Prophet As I mentioned last night to some of you, that you know the, the revival that is experienced under Salahuddin Ayyubi, who, by the way, his students were influenced, Nordin Zanki is going to be influenced by the followers of Al-Ghazali. The idea that Al-Ghazali is like politically non-committal is problematic because his students led an insurrection in Spain and they also led to the Ayyubi insurrection that happened in history. Those were the, from his madrasas, even though he was gone. But one of the things that is noted that led to the success of Salahuddin Ayyubi were two things. Number one is, Itqanu shabab tajweed al-Qur'an. The young people in the era of Salahuddin Ayyubi became uh, excellent in reciting the Qur'an. The second thing is, wujud that women ulama began to appear in the time of Salahuddin, which is like excellent. Right? You think about the Arab Spring that recently happened, right? It largely happened with women, mashallah. The Women's March 2016 uh, that happened in this country, mashallah. So Sayyidina Imam al-Ghazali, his reach is going to extend at an institutional level for a long time. But in order for someone to write an autobiography, they have to have thought deeply about their society. Because we want to frame Al-Ghazali in this reading as a nurse. And the Ummah is the patient. And people like uh, Abu Hamid uh, Al-Ghazali are people who don't necessarily suffer from, from physical illnesses. But as we're going to read today in his introduction, 
he's extremely intellectually free. Uh, he's a brilliant person. And nothing makes people more insecure than a brilliant person. Because a brilliant person is always going to be indirectly, constructively challenging things. And maybe critically challenging things. And so some people said that if human beings suffered from like physical ailments, people like Abu Hamid, people like Al-Ma'ari, they suffered from the disease of society. People just could not understand it. And it, it also made the status quo nervous. So you find Abu Ala Al-Ma'ari, he says, فَلَمَّا رَأَيْتُ الْجَهْلَ فَاشِحًا تَعْلَمْتُ حَتَّى يُقَالُ أَنِّي جَاهِلُ Al-Ma'ari says, when I saw that ignorance had become popular, I studied until it became popular to call me stupid. <laughs> you have to think about what he's saying, right? When, when stupidity became the norm by which everyone measures things, I learned until that group of people called me stupid because then I knew I was intelligent. So what do you think are some of the main, as we get ready to read part of his introduction today, what do you think are some of the main illnesses that impact the Muslim community? I think one big thing is materialism. Uh, you know, focusing on the physical, outward aspects of things. Opulence, right? The creeping secular that, that is kind of tied to the hip of, of materialism. Yeah. That is something that he talks about in his introduction, right? The opulence that under the Abbasi period was experienced. We talked about that on Tuesdays as well. What else? Do you guys think is impacting the Muslim world, the Muslim community in North America? Let's just focus on the North American Muslims. North American Muslims. What do you think it is I that is? Like lack of, maybe lack of community or unity in some certain areas, right? Based off of like sex or just very small viewpoints. Yeah, lack of unity, right? In fact, you find people who like value division, like they actually value it, they, they push it. We'll talk about that. And tonight we're going to talk about one of the most, you know, irresponsibly used hadiths to justify division. You know, we're going to talk about that inshallah. Excellent. Thank you, uh, Tamim. And thank you, Namr. What else? Who else wants to jump in? Don't be shy. Like, feel free to have a voice. You know, just because I got a kufi on, look, I got a t-shirt under this, so y'all good. Like, I don't, don't think it's like, you know, it's a full-on check mode or something. It's just, you know, got to look right for the part sometimes, you know. But, but, um, feel free to chime in. This is very, this is, this is teaching me, like, I'm learning from you, right? I'm not, I'm not in your demographic. I'm not able to, to see what you see. So I want to learn from you, uh, from your age group. From your experiences. I have an idea. Sure, please. Um, I think like one thing that I've seen is like people, especially like in our age group, like they gain like this much knowledge and it feels like it's like this much, you know, and like um there's a lot of like advice giving, or at least they call it advice giving, but it's just very like harsh and, and accusatory, you know, like Especially on TikTok, like you see it all the time, you know, it's very like, oh, 
you don't work a job, sister. Like, you get off. Like, I don't know. It's just a lot to handle. You know, it's like, I feel like we've kind of, yeah, like lack of a flop in the way that we talk to people. Yeah, lack of love for one another, too. Like, how do I correct my daughter? You know what I'm saying? Like, how do I correct my son? How do I correct people that are my friends? It's not the same way that I correct people. Like, you would, there was, like, when I was younger, we didn't have access to people, like, the way you do. And you would be very cautious of just, like, stepping to somebody, you know? Because, not just because they may tear your head off, but also, like, you may hurt them. Like, you, you may not, you may not solve the problem. So, when people are, like, going at people that they don't even know, like, they don't know what kind of, that person may be abused at home, man. You know what I mean? And now you're, like, abusing them online. It doesn't mean also that you don't call to the truth, but, like, there's a way to make dessert. You know what I mean? Like, how could you make light ugly? Like, how is that possible? So, yeah, most definitely. I think that, and this applies to old folks too, right? Like, how much do old folks know about young folks? About that much. But they always want to tell you what it means to be young. But we're not young anymore. We don't necessarily know, you know, what it means to be young. Same thing applies to religion. People get a little knowledge. We say, ilmu qalil shay'un khatir. Like, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, man. And then also life, exp life experiences, right? Our, our religious knowledge is also informed greatly by experiences we have in life. That's why one of the conditions even of studying is to travel. Like I can say I studied in a madrasa, but like when I went to Egypt and when I lived in the Muslim world, like what I just learned, you know, just learned outside of school. Like I, I couldn't, I don't know how much I'd have to pay to take a course like that. Like it's, invaluable engaging people speaking different dialects and languages appreciating different people's cultural attitudes you know all that i mean the first friday i became muslim i'm from i'm from the south midwest right we don't drink hot tea hot tea with milk right first friday that i ever went to as a juma you know second friday the second friday i ever went to as a new muslim and these brothers from pakistan they invited me to their house. They were from Pakistan, like Pakistan. They weren't born and raised in the US, like they were coming from Pakistan. And then they were like, do you wanna have some dude putty? And, and that's when I fell in love with like one of the greatest drinks in the history of drinks itself, right? But then they brought out like tea with like hot milk. And I was like, man, I'm used to tea with like ice and lemon, man. But then I realized, you know, when I was young, like, man, this is, this is a great opportunity to learn about people. Like, being part of the Muslim community is like, we're like the spiritual Silk Road. You know what I mean? Like we just have so many different types of people. So, yeah, even being young, sometimes we don't necessarily have the experiences that are going to marinate the knowledge properly. You know, having children, I can say, you know, really teaches you how to love your wife. I saw, I saw my wife give birth to my daughter, dude. Like, I saw that. Like, when you see that, you're just like, oh, man, that's, that's my queen, dude. Like, halas, bro. Like, well, I mean, I see the baby come from this person, right? Like, that's, that's very profound. That informs you as a, as a religious teacher, right? As someone who engages. So not only is it like a little bit of knowledge, it's also like a little bit of experience, man. That's why they're so hot and upset at people.
right? So that's great. Who else wants to jump in? So we have opulence and the creeping secular. We have Hezbiya, like the groups and the methabs and, you know, when you get in, I was lucky in Oklahoma, I didn't know what is Salafi and Sufi. I memorized the Quran, I didn't know what that was. I didn't learn about that till I left the country, man. It was a good thing, alhamdulillah, you know? Um, especially for converts, because they, they try to recruit us, right, all the time, trying to pull us in. It gets very confusing. You go to college, it's not the same, like, beautiful Islam that maybe even you saw in your home. It's an antagonistic Islam. And I've seen it wreck MSAs, like, destroy destroy them people that are really talented they're doing internships you know in seattle you know they're doing great in, but they can't they can't get an msa to work together the heck dude you work at tesla but you can't get you can't get an msa to work. you can't get the light of a lot to run a community but you can get electricity to run a car it's kind of contradictory right nice or or we'll outsource our concerns like yeah we really care about this social movement this social movement, yeah, you know what I'm saying, yeah, yeah. But then when it comes to Muslims, we'll be in jest. And we'll, we'll turn against each other. Excellent. What else? Anyone else want to add anything before we take the last few minutes to read? Because we want to try every week to, to discuss something that's going to come up in the reading. So it makes the reading more kind of relevant to us. There's something I've thought about recently. It's like uh, uh, our, it's difficult for us to uh, realize and know from our heart our impotence, poverty, and weakness because we have been given so much that is like just constantly there, such as technology, you know, food. Yeah, how do we balance humility with also being bold and strong for the haq. Because sometimes we see religious people, they're wimps, they're cowards. They don't want to do anything. They want to use religion as an excuse just to bend over to dictatorships, right? That's, that's one extreme. Then on the other extreme, as you said, is we find sometimes the bravado and the sense of autonomy, which is counter to uh, our religion. That's a balance. Right? The servants of the most merciful, they walk on the earth, it's hard to translate in English, like they purposely walk with humility. They, they make themselves humble. But they're still regal. When the ignorant people talk to them, they say, Salam, no shame in my game, Salam, what's up? You know, don't matter. Exposure to a lot of un-Islamic practices and values, yeah, that, that certainly is, is a, at a very deep level, right? A very deep level. Um, not even at the explicit level, there is a very implicit exposure um, that can create attitudes and, and, and ways we think uh, about life. Excellent, excellent. I think another one I'll add, just to be the, the cha-cha in the room, um, is I think that our approach towards religious studies is extremely stagnant. It doesn't encourage intellectual engagement. And that's a problem, because then it's not exciting for people, right? Sometimes it's not contextually appropriate. So what we're going to do then, inshallah, is we're going to start reading from this important work written by Imam al-Ghazari. Um, this is a short class, so I'm not going to give a lot of information, but you want to think about his writing from three perspectives, or four. 
Number one is he is writing as a sociologist. He is writing as someone who is thinking critically and constructively about the sicknesses of an era and the potential of his era. So there's kind of two components there. Number two, he's thinking about his own psycho how he has been impacted psychologically by the era he lives in. So he talks about his, his life as a child. Like you're, you're probably going to find it a little bit more different than any kind of religious book you may have read from the tradition. Because it's very reflective. So he talks about, when he, when he addresses doubt, he says, and I'm sure this is something my, my, one of my family members asked me. He's like, when I was little, like, I noticed like, Christian kids are raised Christian. Jewish kids are raised Jewish. Atheists are raised atheists. Like, how do I rationalize that with like this meta message of one final truth? Like he talks about it. He says, as a child, like I noticed this. So he's reflecting on an age. He talks about why he left Baghdad, why he pulled away from being the you know, applauded academic. He talks about the, the, the situation of his life. So he looks at sociology, and then he looks at how this has impacted him. So in many ways, he's modeling for us kind of what Nemer talked about, like being honest with ourselves, right? Being like vulnerable, not putting the, the word personality is in Greek means mask, right? So not putting masks up, but like being honest about where I need to be humble, like how I need to address myself. The third thing is an analysis of the ummah. Like what is the state of the Muslim community? So he goes from like general sociology, Christians, Jews, you name it, to the political, economic, religious, social, cultural situation of Muslims in his time, which is like 5th century after Hijri. And then finally, and this is the most important, is what is the purpose of religious knowledge? Like why? What's the purpose of it all? And how to achieve certainty. So like if we think about the world that we live in now, these questions, I think, are important to our current age. Right? We find them in front of us. So I've sent a translation that um, someone, someone can share. Um, and I'll read the Arabic. It's just my style. I'm old school. It's how I was taught. Um, and... As I read it, um, we can kind of go through it together. Um, I'm going to see how I can do both at the same time. Yeah, I think I can do it like this. So uh, sometimes I may not necessarily agree with the translator. That doesn't mean the translator is wrong. And I think you can zoom and make it bigger too if you need to. Um, translation is always about opinion. And sometimes it becomes difficult. So he begins, Alhamdulillah. الذي يفتتح بحمده كل رسالة ومقالة He says, all praise be to Allah who by his praise all statements and discussions and forms of communication should, should start. وصلاة على محمد المصطفى Sahibin 
min al-dalala. Then he says, and peace. And here peace means like a dua or rahmah upon the Prophet Muhammad. The word Muhammad is from the form of the word mufa'al. This form actually means someone that does something so much that they become the object of something. Okay? So, hamd, hamada, muhammad means that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam does acts and treats people in such a way that it locates him as their as their constant like object of praise as a person. And this has a very important impact on liberation theology and activism. As an activist in the Muslim community, am I placing my actions and how I treat people? Am I Muhammad? Am I the, the metaphoric Muhammad? Have I done things that earn the praise of people? So Sayyidina Muhammad, his name itself is a great responsibility for anyone who's Muslim that we have to earn the respect of society. It's not given to us. So I'm Muhammad Majazan. As a follower of Muhammad, I should treat the people in the world around me in a way as Alama Iqbal, he says very beautifully in one poet, he says, if the Muslim were to live Islam as in the Quran, every time a non-Muslim would see the Muslim, he would say, Like Surah Rahman. Al-Mustafa is the one that Allah chose him and, and protected him. As Allah says in the Quran, Wallahu ya'simuka min al-nas. Sahib al-nubuwati wa risala, who brought creed and brought law. When you read nubuwa and risala together like this, nubuwa is referring to faith, a risala is referring to sharia. So nubuwa is like akhlaq and imaniyat. Faith and iman, a risala is haram and halal. Wa ala alihi, and upon the family of the Prophet. We know that, unfortunately, sometimes within the Sunni community, we don't hear a lot about the family of the Prophet I'll just read for you one beautiful poem of Sayyidina Imam al-Shafi'i, who was actually from Al-Muttalibi, he's from Ahl Bayt, from the Ashraf, who he said, He said, O oh, family of the Prophet that the love for you is fard, right? إِنَّ حُبَّكُمْ فَرْضٌ To love you is an obligation. قَدْ نَزَّرَ اللَّهُ تَعْرَى بِهِ فِي قُرْآنِهِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said this in the Qur'an. يَكْفِيكُمْ مِنْ فَخْرِ مِنْ عَظْمِ الْفَخْرِ أَنَّكُمُ It's enough for you, Sayyidina Shafi says to the family of the Prophet, to know مَنْ لَا يُسَلِّ عَلَيْكُمْ لَا صَلَاةَ لَهُ Whoever doesn't make tashahud, say, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala ali Muhammad. They don't have a salah, according to the madhab of Shafi, by the way. It's a longer discussion. But what he's trying to show is like the respect and honor someone should have for the blessed family of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And a sahabi is whoever saw the Prophet, peace be upon him, believed in him and died as a Muslim. And we know we love the Sahaba, we have an affinity for the Sahaba, as mentioned by the Prophet, Ashabi, Ashabi, Iyakum, Ashabi, right? Be careful about my Sahaba, like, show them this respect and, and admiration. As Imam Ibn Hazm, he said, 
that it's enough of a blessing to know that a Sahaba just saw the face of the Prophet even for one second. Like that should tell you like that one second is better than your whole life. Uh, is what Ibn Hazm says. Al-Hadeen min al-Dalala, those who guide from error. Then he says, Amma ba'd, faqad sa'altani ayyuha al-akh fiddi. Abu Hamad al-Ghazari here, I think in the, right after introduction, he says, to proceed, indeed, my dear brother in religion, you ask me. Something really cool, man. Most people say that he's actually talking to himself. That's so cool. Ayyuha al-akh fiddin, yani kan yu khatib nafsa. Why would he do that? Like, why would he write this to himself? Any thoughts? Like, who, who sits down and writes a book to themselves? Like, nowadays, I gotta post everything I do online. I saw someone on TikTok, they posted about burning their popcorn. Don't nobody care about your nasty popcorn, dude. Like, everything's about exhibition now. Here, we find someone who, as, as, as Namr mentioned, right? is really invested in uncovering the mysteries of his own shortcomings. So, he writes a book to himself. <laughs> it's like amazing. Who would do that? What do you think is the wisdom in it? What are your thoughts? Why would he write a book to himself? Well, for example, um, I'm sometimes read Risale Noor and uh, it's basically Imam Sa'idosi's writing for himself. Basically caused this sort of, this cure that I have received because of my deficiencies of my nafs. So I think when we brothers read it that way, we feel more receptive to the message. Uh, you know, in that like, he's not just telling you, you all gotta do this. And uh, you know, the more we kind of learn about his experience and how sort of high spiritual station he had, the more we feel that this is more important advice. Mm. Mm. Who else? Anyone else wanna wanna try? Thank you, man. That's beautiful. I just mm -hmm. think it's yes, please. I was just gonna say maybe like for him to kind of understand his own journey at a deeper level as well. Cause like from my own experience just talking about things, even if it's like in my head, it just helps explain things better. And then for me to see it from like, as an observer, instead of like being a part of the entire thing. Yes, excellent. Uh, Mormon says, sometimes you're more honest with yourself when writing things out. Also thoughts can be very scattered at times, but it can help organize them, yeah. So one of the assignments for this class, of course I can't give you an assignment because there's like no grade, you know what I'm saying? But is you want to keep a diary. And you want to write about to yourself, right? It's very important for you and I in this circus age of exhibition where the freak show is every time we open our phones, right? The freak show used to be just in the back of the circus where you could see, you know, uh, a catfish that could like do the running man dance or something. You know what I'm saying? Like that was back in the days. But now... Normality is the freak show in many ways. Like, you see a guy on top of a tower in Dubai kissing his girlfriend. How did that date go down? Like, how does that work? Hey, hey, what are you doing tonight? Uh, I don't know. Hey, 
Would you like to sneak up on one of the tallest towers in the world and take a selfie with me while I kiss you? Oh, sure. Like, how does that work? Right? Where's the genius in that? Instead of maybe looking in places in Dubai where people don't have food and serve them food. Right? We, we live in an age now where exhibition is seen as an accomplishment without any, any filtering. So the reason that it's good to keep a diary throughout this book, and I don't want to see your diary later on. I mean, I, not that I don't want to see it, but I want you to feel like it's your private thoughts, man. Is practice introspection in an age of exhibition. And you don't have to write like mountains of information, but you want to kind of go along with Al-Ghazali. And each week I'll give you something to think about. He says, فَقَدْ سَأَلْتَنِي أَيُّهَا الْأَخْفِ الدِّينِ أَنْ أَبُثُّ إِلَيْكَ غَايَةَ الْعُلُومِ وَأَسْرَارِهَا he says that you requested of me that I make clear for you the, the goal, Raya means the purposes or the objectives of knowledge and the secrets of knowledge. And that you ask me to also expound for you the dangers of different groups. So here we feel like we're in our community now, and the complexities and different approaches of these groups. And actually one of the words used is like a bottomless ocean. Imam Asubki said every student he ever taught succeeded, except the student who spent his or her time trying to get into, this sheikh said this, this sheikh said this, this sheikh is wrong, this sheikh is right, this group is on the haqq, this group is the wrong group, this group is the right group. He said, all of my students succeeded except that person. When I went to my teacher, the first time I started hearing about groups, I came back to Oklahoma. I said to Sheikh, like, which group? This group, this group, this, this, this. He said, learn and you'll know for yourself. But don't, don't learn from them about each other because it's going to be a bias, right? Every time, obviously. And to relate to you what... And this is beautiful. Istikhlas al min al al And then to clarify for you, like which groups are right. And istikhlas is like to make clean from khalas, ikhlas. Right? The truth, like so to, to cleanse the truth from all of the muck and mire that you see in the community of the different groups. And to clarify for you the, the way that you need to you need to follow. And I don't know why my screen for some reason is like freaking out. Sorry guys. And here he says something very profound. And the the, the great effort, right? And the brazen kind of bravery I had to rise above intellectual conformity. And what he means here is hadid al-taqlid. In the language here is hard to translate. It is though he's saying, I employed my intellect, right, to rise above the lowlands 
of intellectual conformity, like the plane of it. Like it's a plane. This is rhetoric in Arabic as if to say like this conformity to this extent that kept me from trying to think about what's truly correct. And he continues, So, man, this is hard to translate. But how did I rise above the lowlands of just conforming without thinking to the mountain or to be raised up to having insight and an intellect? And he says it here, above the plane of conformity to the heights of observation and independent investigation. So here you're getting kind of, uh, you know, uh, when you find people who say they follow Ghazali and then they're like really into like not thinking or not engaging, it's not really reflected in the man's philosophy, right? And how he thinks. وَمَسْتَفَدْتُ أَوَّلًا مِنْ عِلْمِ كَلَامِ And what did I benefit first from ilm kalam We know ilm kalam sometimes we see our Salafi brothers and sisters, they'll put things online or they'll talk about like Imam Shafi'i, ظَمَّ ilm kalam Imam Shafi'i, he attacked ilm kalam Imam Malik. And, and the challenge with this, and we have to realize, is that every group has a little bit of the Salaf in them. The Salaf is not one way of thinking. For example, the Salaf on where you wash your face in wudu have more than 34 opinions. So which Salaf are you telling me to follow? So the idea of creating like a monolithic group that embodies the one opinion of the Salaf is actually counter to the uh, incredible vibrancy and differences of the real Salaf. Like to try to make one Salaf is counter to the Salaf. That's why Umar ibn Abdulaziz said, Alhamdulillah, that the Sahaba didn't agree upon everything because life would be hard for people. But was in their differences that allowed us to serve different needs of people and communities. So for example, Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha said, whoever saw, said that the Prophet saw Allah as a liar. Ibn Abbas the opposite. He said that the Prophet saw Allah. This is a difference in Aqeedah. They're both Salaf. So which Salaf do you follow? Which one is right? Which one is wrong? So we have to be very, very careful of Sufi groups, Salafi groups, whatever group. Especially I'm telling you this as someone who went through MSA in America. Right? Be with the Quran, be with the Ummah. Be with the Sunnah, be with the Ummah. Take the good from people, leave the bad. And be careful of people who spend their entire time destroying others. Just stay away from it. Imam al-Ghazali will say later on in this book, when you, sign, when you find someone, all they do is attack other Muslim leaders and teachers. You should run from them. So Sayyidina Imam uh, Al-Ghazali, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he says, what I took from the people of Kalam, we have to understand the statements. First of all, even if Imam Shafi'i, and he wasn't, was talking about the people of Kalam, a statement of one Imam is not Qala Allah, Qala Rasulullah. Right? The statement of one Imam about something isn't haqq. That's their opinion. For example, Imam Ahmed, his opinion about Muhasibi, that's his opinion. But the majority of scholars, they praised Imam al-Muhasibi, for example. You can find one person, Imam Ghazali was astray, he was wrong, he was this. You can, 
You can find someone in your own family that has something bad to say about you. Does that make it the truth? So first of all, there's immaturity. But what do the majority of scholars say about a person? That's where we fall in the center. Imam al-Zahabi, who's the student of Ibn Taymiyyah, he said about Imam al-Ghazali, فَأَيْنَ مِثَالُ أَبِي حَمَدْ فِي أَيَّامِنَا هَذِهِ Where is anyone even close to being like him now? In our time. فَرَحِيمُهُ اللَّهِ حُجَّةُ الْإِسْلَامِ So you have to be careful of agents that are put in the Muslim community that are going to try to amplify our differences amongst Sunnis. I'm talking now in the Sunni community. Amplify our differences, cause us to waste our time and fight each other so we cannot serve and treat the world. So we're like an ummah that's fighting over, you know, what kind of water we're going to use to put out the fire and then we all get burned up. So Sayyidina Imam al-Shafi'i, when he talked about, there's a number of statements where he talks about ilm al-kalam. Ilm al-kalam is theology. And the majority of Sunnis are the people of kalam. The minority are the Hanbali school. The majority are the people of kalam, al-Athariya. And Imam al-Shafi'i, he said, you know, whoever khalafa al-Qur'ana wa sunnah wa aqbal al-ala al-kalam. Like whoever opposes the Qur'an and sunnah and engaged in kalam, this person should be dealt with strongly, right? Yeah, but what if they don't go against the Qur'an and Sunnah? The statement doesn't have the same meaning now. The statement is conditioned. Secondly, in, this, in the time of Imam uh, Shafi, we need to appreciate epistemology. The word Kalam was largely understood to be applicable not to Sunnis, but, but to Mu'tazilites. So the context of Imam Shafi's statement is not Sayyidina Imam Abi Hassan al-Ash'ari. He's not Sayyidina Imam Abi, uh, Abu Mansur al-Maturidi, the majority of Sunnis. He's talking about the Mu'tazilites. That's why also you find the statement of Imam Shafi, whoever accepted kalam and opposed the Qur'an and Sunnah, yudrab bin na'ab, should be beaten with sandals. He's not talking about the mutakallimin of Ahl Sunnah. He's talking about the Mu'tazilites. And this is highly irresponsible. You've probably seen the statement where it says Imam Shafi said whoever accompanied the Sufis at Dhuhr came back to Asr as an ignorant person. This statement is mentioned by Imam Ibn Jawzi in Al-Mawdu'at and it is considered min al-abatil. Actually, not from Ibn Jawzi, but the narration is considered extremely false. So you want to be very, very careful of things that you hear without asking what is the historical context of the word being used, right? And number two is, what is the authenticity of what's being used? This is very important for you. And I know this class, I'm sure not a lot of people will attend. It's okay. But those who attend, you're going to benefit. Because this is not for entertainment. This is to really provide you as best I can and for you to provide me essential tools to really help us navigate some of the challenges that Imam al-Ghazali is going to talk about. Then he says, He says, the second thing that, that you asked me to tell you about is why I hate the academic world. <laughs> this is what he's saying, right? He's not talking about your academic world, although you may have problems with people attending. 
right? But what he's talking about is the environment, the religious institutions of his age. Because in the Abbasi period, they became rocked with blindly following teachers, like to the point that it became like fanboy in them or fangirl in them without any critical thought. And then that led to like madhabism, that led to like infighting and destabilization of the Ummah. Al-Qasirin li dark al-haqqi ala taqlid. Those, he says, Al-Qasir is the one who is incapable. Right? From the word Qasr. Qasr is a, is a palace, right? So this person has made a Qasr on their mind. They have fortified their mind and created a wall to protect them from thinking. You see, like his language is like, MashaAllah, my man is dope. So their mind is not able to reach the truth because they are fanatics. The third thing he says is that you want me to talk to you about is the problem of philosophy. So you can see now, inshallah, a lot to take, inshallah, from this book. And how it caused me to doubt in it and why I dislike it. And we know that Imam al-Azizari wrote a book, The Destruction of the Philosophers. She wrote a book about this. And then finally he says, you know, that I'm going to talk to you about what I found from the people of Tasawwuf, right? Again, when we read words about Sufism, especially when it's being pushed by uh, our Salafi brothers and sisters, you need to apply the same exact formula that I mentioned early, re earlier, respectfully and honestly, and demand academic integrity. Number one is the time period or the context of the word. Number two is the... Um, the authenticity. So for example, look at Imam Ibn Taymiyyah in Risalatul Fuqara, who when he talks about the different types of Sufis, he says, as for those Sufis who are upon the Sunnah and the Quran, فَهُمْ أَحْسَنُ الْعِبَادِ They are the best people. So when someone says to you like, all Sufis are evil, because Ibn Taymiyyah said all Sufis are evil, you can say, no, no, that's not what he said. This is what he said. So Sayyidina Imam al-Ghazari also we have to apply that here that when he's saying that you know what I, I took uh, from the people of Tasawwuf, right, the benefit, here he's talking about those people who were on of course the right way. Then he continues and he says inshallah we're going to stop in a minute and you ask me to tell you why I stepped away from teaching and spreading knowledge in Baghdad even though I had a lot of students and then what, what led me to return to a life of teaching after a long time and then he says, I don't need to read this part in Arabic. He says, so I, I, I've turned to you to answer your request after I thought about the truth of what you were seeking. 
And I say, Musta'inan billahi wa mutawakkilan alayhi. And I say, trusting in Allah and seeking the help of Allah. Wa mustawqifan and seeking tawfiq from Allah and turning to Him, i'malu. And then He begins. He says, You should know, i'lamu, ahsan Allahu. He says, You know, you should know the following. And my, my book is a little strange. The print here is a little weird. Uh, just one second, my apologies. Ahsanallahu ta'ala, he says, you know, you must know, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide you and lead irshadakum, right? And, and cause you to be led by haqq. That the differences that you find in religions, وَالْمِلَلْ and dogmas, and in the ummah of the Prophet, in different groups, into different parties and groups, what we see now. He said that this issue of the differences of religion, and then the intra-faith differences that you find amongst the Muslim community is an endless, bottomless, deep ocean that most people drown in. And only a few people were able to be saved from it. Because every one of the groups, they think they're the right group. As Allah says in the Quran, That every group assumed that they're on the truth. And this is where we're going to stop. And he said, and this actually is amplified by the hadith of the Prophet, the truthful one. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Satafteriku ummati thalathan wa sabaina firqah, anajiyatu minha wahida. That the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is reported to have said that that my ummah is going to divide into 73 sects, only one of them will be saved. This hadith, as we finish today, insha'Allah ta'ala, is perhaps one of the most difficult text and irresponsibly used text by Muslims who have very little training in the science of hadith and in the basic understanding of Islam. First of all, we're going to look at this hadith and the reason I'm spending time explaining this hadith to you because I think it's important for you to know because I remember later on as I moved away from Oklahoma and I started to engage in MSAs, I saw MSA after MSA after MSA divided, split and wrecked. Even I saw masajid with people using this hadith. What's always been interesting to me is that the one quoting the hadith is the one who thinks they're safe. <laughs> like this, is the, this is the interesting part, right? Before we engage. And Imam al-Shatabi, he says something amazing about this hadith, even, even though he considered it a good hadith, going against the majority of Hufaf. And he said that even if you believe this hadith is right, it is not allowed to label people like 68, 43, 32. I remember once in uh, San Diego, California, I was in a masjid and there was an old gentleman, I was sitting next to him and people would walk by and he would go like this, 46, 
And, you know, the new Muslim, you're kind of scared. You don't want to say nothing. I don't know what's going on. You know, it's, it's something I haven't learned yet. I'm just going to shut up. Then someone else would walk by. 53. Then someone else would walk by. 19. So I say, hey, I'm sorry to, to ask you, but like, did I miss something? Is there some kind of right to Jum'ah? But I missed is the convert guy. He said, yeah, you know the hadith about 73 sects? I labeled, I labeled everyone in the masjid according to their sect. And I'm, I'm practicing remembering who's who. So then, of course, I couldn't resist. I was a little bold when I was young. I said, what number are you? <laughs> what do you think he said? What do you think he said? What do you guys think he said? I said, I said to him, uh, what number are you, man? He said, I'm number one. <laughs> so then I said, what number am I? He said, you don't want to know. I said, thank you. Jazakallah khair. Have a nice day, bro. This hadith actually is extremely weak for a number of reasons that you should know, so you can at least try to work to bring some unity to the Muslim community when people try to use this hadith. First of all, this hadith is not mentioned by Imam al-Bukhari or Imam Muslim in their sahih. And when al-Bukhari and Muslim agree on not mentioning something, it is understood that it did not reach that level of authenticity. Doesn't mean it's weak, but it did not pass their criterion for being the most authentic. It is related by Imam Ahmed, it's related by Imam Abu Dawud, mashallah, great hufad of hadith, Imam At-Tirmidhi and others, and Sayyidina Imam At-Tirmidhi actually said Hassan al-Sahih, we're going to talk about it in a second, wa Ibn Majah in his chapter on Fitan, and Abu Ya'la, wa Ibn Huban, and Hakim, and Hakim of course, although he was trying to write a book of hadith that did not reach the criteria, that, that Bukhari and Muslim did not collect that read, met their criterion, he wasn't able to finish uh, his book. The second thing is that we find a lot of different wordings of this hadith, and this is important for you to know, that when a hadith has too many wordings that make it impossible to make them, con uh, uh, um, I'm thinking in English, like you can't get them to conform. So this is called, you may want to write this down, Meaning the wording sometimes is completely contradictory. So for example, that's why the Malikis, the hadith that the Prophet said Basmala before he opened his, his prayer, then you find the same person or another narration saying he never said Basmala before he opened his prayer. Like what are you going to do with that? Did he or did he not? So if we look at the different narrations of this hadith, we find very rarely do any of them agree on one wording, specifically the last part. They agree on the first part about division, they don't agree on the last part. So for example, ma ana alayya wa ashabi, like what I am upon, ma ana alayhi, excuse me, wa ashabi, and my companions. You find that in one of the narrations. Another narration you find wahid wa hiya al All of them are in the hell except one, and this is the jama'ah. 
You find another narration, All of them are in the hellfire except one. What I'm teaching you now is not something, unfortunately, it should be taught at MSAs, man. But we have to be careful. There is certainly a place for entertainment and fun in college life. That should make up the bulk of college life, right? Because you got no bills. But at the same time, unless you are me, at the same time, you got to learn, man. Right? You, 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 my teacher used to say, he used to say, I had a t teacher who was tough. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm chilling. He's like, you're going to chill till you thaw in hell. I was like, whoa, okay, I'm not chilling. Right? I'm not chilling. So the first is that the wordings are impossible to bring into conformity. This is called iltirab, and it's a source of weakness in a hadith, a serious problem. The second thing is that we find that, as I mentioned earlier, this hadith, actually even in its chain of narrations, we find sometimes there's a break in the chain, sometimes the narrator is unknown, things that cause the chain also to experience problems. The, the third problem is from a, a, a perspective of usuluddin, because doesn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran call us khayra ummatin ukhrijat li nas, that we are the best ummah, but if you take this hadith, it means that we are worse than those ummas who came before us. And there's a great statement of, I wrote it here somewhere, one of the early scholars about this that I will try to find that talks about like, you know, the, 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 the ummah of the Prophet is khayra ummah The fourth, and I, I didn't get into this, it's a little complicated, but we find that a large majority of scholars from the past and now even in the present wrote critical analysis of the chain, of the wording, and the meaning of this hadith. For example, Imam Ibn, Ibn Wazir al-Yamani, he actually wrote a, a poem about it. He said, إِيَّاكُمْ وَكُلُّ فِي النَّارِ إِلَّا وَاحِدٍ be careful of the hadith that everyone is in the fire except one. So Arusha is saying, I have a question. Oh no, it's not Arusha. No, no. Uh, sorry, I have a question from someone that says, like, do you think that since a lot of Islamic knowledge has been passed down through men, that some hadith interpretations are flawed by patriarchal viewpoints? So... I do think that that's a possibility. You know, Imam Ibn Hazm, one of the interesting points about him is that when he wrote a chapter on menstruation, he said, I went and asked women. I don't know what it's like to menstruate. So I don't think that those individuals were necessarily patriarchal in their time. Patriarchy wasn't under, we're looking at now hindsight's 2020. But I do think we can be critical of interpretations which are seen now as going against the generality and beauty of Islam, and oftentimes are invoking, and this is something else the person can't see, my glasses are not good, that, that the, uh, sometimes in the books of tafsir, stories are taken from Jews and Christians, and their sources, which as Dr. Ingrid Madison has brilliantly talked about, actually take women farther back than what Islam intended for them. So there is the interpretational challenge of not having women looking at those texts and sharing a woman's reflection. And then also there's a sourcing challenge. And, and I, 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 you know, 
I understand the climate that we're in. I, I don't necessarily think people meant like they had ill intent. I just think that's the problem of their age. Right? That's a problem of their age. And it's on us to rectify those things. And, and, and we talked a little bit, I think, about that uh, last evening. So Imam Ibn Wazir, he writes a poem. He says, Kullu fi narin illa wahid. The other thing that's interesting about this hadith is, doesn't the Prophet call him Ummah? Like, my Ummah will divide. So if someone is from the Ummah of the Prophet wasallam, the Prophet is saying, this is my Ummah, are they going to go to hell? Just think about the wording. Ummati, my Ummah, my community. The Ummah are those here, the specific meaning, who follow him, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And finally, because I'm sure people want to attend uh, Sheikh uh, Aisha Prime's amazing program tonight, there are some scholars who state that the meaning, and, and here's the statement of Al Khattabi about this. He said, وَفِي الْحَدِيثِ دَلَالَ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ هَذِهِ الْفِرْقَةِ أَوْ فُرَقُ كُلِّهَا غَيْرُ خَارِجَ مِنَ الدِّينِ that actually the, the word Ummah implies that these people have not left Islam. Because the Prophet said his Ummah. So they're not Kufar. And finally, and this is a very profound interpretation I heard from one of my teachers and also I, I read in some of the classical books, that Ummah here actually means the Ummah of Christians and Jews who will live during the time of the Prophet ﷺ until the end of time. Yani the Christians and Jews of my ummah, yani my asr, my period. But using this hadith to attack fellow Muslims and to label fellow Muslims is agreed upon up until around 200 years ago amongst a minority of people, a minority of, of individuals, the majority of Ahl-Sunnah, have not used this hadith in a way to label, destroy, and dismantle the community. So we'll stop here. Next week, inshallah, we're going to talk about fitrah. I'm sure a lot of you may have questions about this because Imam al-Ghazali is going to start to talk about his own experiences as a child and the things that he observed as a child and how they caused him to begin to question things about life. And he does mention the hadith of the Prophet that everybody is born on fitrah. So two weeks from now, sorry, not next week, we will continue that discussion. Inshallah, is there any feedback on how I can improve this? I hope it's not too heavy uh, or too difficult. Um, uh, my apologies if it's if it's over the top. I can I can like water it down a little. Don't be shy. You know I don't get offended. My goal is that you can benefit. We can even not read it. We can just do summaries. We can just take like here's a paragraph. Here's an idea. Here's a paragraph. Here's an idea. Uh, but I want to make sure that, you know, uh, we are achieving a balance of education with a little entertainment, insha'Allah. Tamam. Any, any questions or thoughts? Anything we can do to uh, help folks? Because eventually his ideas, we're going to be getting into discussions, right? on some of the ideas that he talks about. And the idea is to try to keep a diary. And I think what you want to talk about this week is how you know you felt when you realized or learned maybe that this 
prophetic narration used to divide the community and split the community actually is not strong. Nice. Tamim, have you ever been in a seminary? I like the Mother I'm joking. I'm just giving you a hard time. Is that a pejorative or is that like a positive? Like I'm <laughs> Are you saying that no, as a pejorative? But no, but feel be feel free also to give critical critical feedback, right? I I I I'm, I don't I want to improve myself also, alhamdulillah. Reham, you have any questions? No, I totally love everything you said. Thank you. How's your family doing? Well, give, give my salam to them, inshallah. It's nice to see. Huh? Mariana wants to know about what we write in our diaries. Yes, so what are you going to write in your diaries? You're going to write about what do you think are the... What, what, what can understanding that that hadith is not strong do to fix things? Right? As far as Muslim unity. Right? And then also, what do you see are the problems or the challenges of like Muslim unity? Right? So, think about oh, what, yeah. those things that have caused this unity. Wa alaykum salam rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So formal with it. Wa alaykum salam amma ba'd faqad qalat maryama min madinati Bronx. El Bronx, all day, every day. <laughs> El Bronx, the Bronx. <laughs> um, well, my question was about about the diaries. Was that um, for the next class would we be kind of discussing the questions, like some of the thoughts and reflections from these questions? Yeah, I mean, feel free to write whatever you want to write about. I think like one of the things maybe you can appreciate is how Al Ghazali, his introduction kind of brings together like sociological situation, religious situation with like the communal situation. So you may want to think about it in those like what are, what is your what is your situation, right? Sociologically, what is the religious situation of Muslims around you? Where's the world at? Like and what's interesting is as we continue to read, we think about Trumpism and the Trumpsters and and, and, and generally living in an age where there is this great decentralization and lack of respect for academics, right? There's a lack of respect for scholarships. Like people like, you know, Anthony Fauci, he doesn't know anything about vaccines. Like, how do you say that? Like, you don't have to agree with him. Like, you, you don't have to agree with him, but like, he knows about vaccines, man. You know, the, the, and, and this is also in the, in, the, in the mosque. You know, this imam, he went to Egypt or he went to Syria or Morocco or Malaysia for like 16 years. He's an idiot. What do you do? Oh, I'm a programmer. So this, this lack of respect for specialization is something that Ghazali is going to talk about. Like how knowledge should be located in a way that allows us to like, like we have to trust knowledge, right? Like he says something interesting. He's like, if I conclude that something is sound knowledge, right? Like I really push hard and I come to the conclusion based on powerful evidence that something is right, you know? After that, like it's very difficult, right? To fall into getting played, 
you know? Like, I was listening to the radio. There are some of these cute Anon people to try to make excuses for what has happened. Although, my God, this is such a big deal. Your guy lost the presidency. Like, compare that to a Yemeni person who's getting the bombs you paid for dropped on their homes. You got real problems, bro. It's such like such a weird thing to think this is like the end of the world. But to the extent that on the radio, the guy was saying that Donald Trump's ruh is inside Biden's body. That the spirit of Donald Trump has left the building and inserted itself into the carcass of Joe Biden. And people are like, yep. Right. So knowledge, right? He's going to talk about that later on. Any other questions or thoughts? We want to make sure we try to head on over to Sheikh Aisha Prime's amazing program on women luminaries. As it gets ready to get started. Jazakumullah khairan. Nice to see so many familiar faces after a long time. MashaAllah, I'm getting all in my feelings now. Alhamdulillah. But may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and keep you safe. InshaAllah. And next time we're going to be talking about fitra. Right? This idea of people are born in a state of fitra. What does that mean? Muslims make this mistake all the time. When I'm like, yeah, I'm a convert. Then that super friendly person goes, like, no, you're not, man. You're a revert, man. Welcome to Islam. I had exactly that guy. Yeah. I love that guy, man. That guy is so nice. Yeah. Like, Islam is so awesome. You're a revert, man. Okay, I'm a revert. Let's use, let's use the wrong active participle here and look like liter, literary anemics. But I didn't say that. I just like, appreciate that, bro. Yours, Mr. Revert. Right. Yumna, you could check it out in the thesaurus, man. It's right there, you know what I'm saying? Pow, pow, open that joint up. No, Boom. I'm just saying, whenever someone says on TikTok that they're like a convert, yeah. you're a revert, and that other person's like, it's the same thing. So I'm, I don't know the difference. I wasn't trying to call you out. I'm sorry. Oh, I... My bad, my bad. Why y'all got to go after Yumna, man? That's not cool, man. Arusha was going after you, Yumna. I saw it. Okay, yeah, but but so there is there is a difference that we'll talk about next time. But then also like, shouldn't we let people experience reversion or conversion however they want? <laughs> it's not that big of a deal, you know what I'm saying? Like, but people got issues. Jazakumullah khairan, Yumna. Thank you, uh, Arusha, Mariama, Tamim, Saman. Uh, Riham, Tamam, Riham, Mashallah. I still remember. May Allah subhanahu wa bless all of you and everyone else that's here. Shuaib, bye. It's good to see you, man. Alhamdulillah, bro. I see you in that game and chair. May Allah subhanahu wa increase you in khair. Jazakallah khairan.